Brad and Morella, some of you probably know, are in Portugal taking a, a long overdue trip home for them and uh, spending some time uh, there in their old places and with their old friends. And, and uh, so we get to have the kids for 10 days, and that's awesome, and uh, in their house, which is also pretty awesome, and uh, their cars, which is good as well. I'm starting to be able to start and feel like I know my way around a little bit, uh, this part of Los Angeles, and, and, uh, and then I get the privilege of talking to you today. So uh, I'm doubly blessed and, and just excited to be here. Um, We've, you've been in a, a series, started a couple of weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, talking about how Jesus changes everything. And uh, so now we're going to kind of continue along that. Along that. And today it's about how, how Jesus uh, changes the law, or how he has come to be the Lord of the law. Now, sooner or later, I think all of us have problems with the law. Uh, I stopped one day to get a cup of tea, couldn't find any place to park. I went around the block to this place that I thought was just, you know, off the beaten path and saw no, you know, parking uh, signs or anything there and and came back after 15 minutes and a policeman had left a nice note on the windshield and and which which meant that I had to pay out. That was that turned out to be an expensive cup of tea, let me tell you. And Brad told me, he said, you know, that's like a rite of passage. You can be a true Angelino now. That's like your your membership card, you know, and I and I took some comfort in that, and yet still when I was sitting down to pay the fine, I was feeling some problem with some trouble with the law, right? Usually when you break the law, there's three three things that can happen. Uh and sometimes all three of them happen. First of all, there can be consequences because usually those rules are put in place for a reason. And when you violate them, something bad can happen. Uh, secondly, there can be punishment, like fine. And then thirdly, there can be some shame that goes along with it. I had an experience also here in Los Angeles not too long ago where we went to, uh, where I think I experienced all three of those things together. It was, it was one of those sushi bars with the rotating, uh, conveyor belt where the sushi just keeps coming around. And I, I, it was my first time. I was a sushi bar virgin at that point and I didn't know all the rules. It was explained to me, but it just looked so cool and I wanted to sit right next to that conveyor belt in the booth where we were. And, uh, and so, there was, it was the spicy tuna or spicy sh- popcorn shrimp roll that was just, I had had one, it was awesome. I wanted another one and it was coming by and who knows when it would come by again. And I hadn't quite mastered the whole trick of how you open the little thing up to get the plate out. And that was my first mistake. I didn't hit it just right. And then when, uh, when it didn't open up just right, I, I should have let it go, but I didn't, and I kept on trying, and then before you know it, there's a big disaster happening, and those plates are piling up, and and I had broken the rules of the sushi place. There were consequences. 
the whole place is going crazy. The, the, the guys in the back are, are running around and, and the thing has to stop, you know. And then, and then there's punishment. The, the lady who's running the place comes up and gives me a personal instruction about how the thing actually works. That was excruciating. And then there's shame because the whole restaurant is turning around looking at me while she does it. Okay. We have problems with the law, but I think our biggest troubles with the law are not the things that happen to us when we break it, but the things that happen in us while we're trying to keep it sometimes. Uh, for the sake of our conversation today, let's just, let's just think about the law here initially as anything that we do to try to measure up. All the stuff that we try to measure up in the eyes of other people, in the eyes of our parents, of, uh, of our children. You know, we want to be the perfect parents. In the eyes of people around us. Uh, anything we do to measure up in, in our own eyes, in, in reaching the goals and the, th- the, the, the aspirations that we set for us, for ourselves, in terms of career or accomplishments or, or achievements or any of those things, but, but also in terms of the kind of person that we want to be. Uh, and anything we do to try to measure up in the eyes of God. When we think about the law in that way, for one thing, it can be exhausting because uh, there's no, it, it's constant. We can never let up. We're constantly trying to measure up. Or, and for another thing, it can be just hopeless because there's no end to it. It's just this endless struggle of self improvement and trying to achieve what we need to do by following whatever rules are set up for us. Uh, and our, our failures can be devastating. And our successes are empty because there's still somewhere, something more we have to accomplish. Uh, it can be exhausting. It's hopeless. And, and there's just this, this overall sense of, of futility about the whole thing. There's an insecurity about it because we're caught up in this neurotic compulsion to prove ourselves. So talking about how Jesus changes everything. How does Jesus change our relationship with the law? Now, in this part of Mark that we're getting to today, we've already seen there have been some tension with the, uh, with the Pharisees and with the religious leaders between Jesus and, and them up to this point. It's, it's tension that's been, that's been brewing. It's been starting. He's, he healed. He, he claimed to be able to forgive sins. That raises suspicion. There was, there was all kinds of, uh, of just the beginning of this tension between him. But in the, the brief passage that we're looking at today, that tension just mounts to the point that it's, uh, they're, they're not just suspicious of him by the end of this passage. They are ready to kill him. They're plotting to take his life, to get rid of him altogether. Now, how did that happen? How did they get so angry so quickly? Well, it has to do with the law because they were people whose lives were completely wrapped up in the law and, and keeping the law. That was their, their, they got their identity from the law. And as Jesus threatened that in various ways, they could not tolerate it at all. So that's what we're looking at. And how Jesus confronts the law, I think, can speak 
deeply to our own trouble with the law. So let's begin reading in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days, in that day. But no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from, from, the new, from it, and the new from the old, and, and, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, but the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, and so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against him how to destroy him. So how does Jesus confront the the law here? How does he address our problems with the law? I think in the first little episode here, he's dealing with what I like to call law is self-improvement. This whole question of fasting, you know, in in the background of this was the fact that in the Old Testament, there was actually one day that was designated as a day of fasting. That was the day of atonement. And it was a day of repentance. It was a day of repair, preparing their heart for, for the expiation of sin. And, and it was a, a day when, when all of Israel was called to a fast. And through the years, they had, they had started fasting more, fasting on other days, fasting on days to commemorate terrible things that had happened, you know, the exile or the, the destruction of the original, the destruction of the original temple, and those kinds of things. They were, they were usually days to stop and mourn and grieve about something terrible that might have happened in the past. But also the, the Pharisees, who were well-intentioned religious people who, who just wanted to be right in everything they did, they had gotten to the point 
point where, you know, if a little fasting is good, a whole lot of fasting is even better. They were fasting two days a week, every Monday and every Thursday. As a rule, they would, they would fast. And, and it, was, it was a sign of piety. It was a sign of repentance, a sign of openness to God. It was something that they did to prepare for the coming redemption that they were all anticipating and maybe even to try and hasten that on. And, you know, there's, there's some value even today in fasting as a spiritual discipline. But along with a lot of other things, it can, it can also slip into the mentality of just trying harder you know we just we just want to do do the right thing try harder so that we can get a grip on on our lives and become the people we want to be i was with a friend recently who has caused incredible destruction in his own life by patterns and and decisions that he's made that's destroying him relationally financially, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And he said, I'm, I'm trying. I think I'm, get, I think I'm about to get, figure this out. I'm trying to become an honest man, trying to become a, a moral man, trying to become a person who, who controls my anger that's caused me so much grief and all of that. And I said, uh, you know, I believe you. I believe you're trying. I believe you're sincere in all of that. Despite the hurt, hurt he'd caused me personally. But I also don't think you can do it by trying harder. What you need is, and what we all need is not an improved you. We need a new you. And you just can't bring that about. Law is self-improvement. Some of our greatest problems for, with the law come just from this particular place. And how does Jesus deal with it? Well, he gives three images. I want to start with the, the latter couple of images first. You know, he talks about wineskins. You, you don't put new wine in an old wineskin that's already been used because the principle is, you know, the wine will expand as it, as it ferments and... And, uh, and a wine skin, this animal skin, expands along with it, but it reaches its limit. And if you fill up an old wine skin that's already been used with new wine, it's going to burst. And it's gonna, you're going to lose all the wine and the skin itself is going to be ruined. You have to put old, old new wine in a new wine skin. And, this, and he says, and if you're sewing a patch on an old garment that's already been worn and shrunk up and everything, you put a, a fine new piece of cloth on that patch, well, what's going to happen is that when that, that, that piece of cloth shrinks, it's going to cause a worse kind of tear, a worse kind of hole than you had to begin with. You can't put the, the new stuff in the the old containers. And Jesus was saying, I'm, I'm coming to do something completely new and it's not going to fit in the old wineskins that you guys are, are using. And, but then the other image that he gives is the image of a, of a wedding. He says, you don't go to a wedding to fast. My disciples are with the bridegroom. This is a time for them to celebrate, to be to be enjoying themselves. This is no time to fast. You don't go to a wedding and, and say, well, I'm just, I'm not going to eat today or I'm not going to partake of this. 
I grew up in the South where a wedding was cake and punch and maybe some peanuts, if you were lucky, back in those days. It's improved a lot now. Then we went to Portugal. And in Portugal, man, they, they, they start with hors d'oeuvres. I mean, they, first of all, the wedding is all day long. And then you get to the meal. And they start with the hors d'oeuvres and they end with breakfast. I mean, it's like eight courses. And they, they party and eat and feast all night long. I like that. That's what a wedding's supposed to be. And back when I was doing a lot of weddings, uh, back in the 80s and 90s uh, down in Texas, well, uh, you know, there was a lot of protocol. There was a wedding coordinator. The thing had to be like time to the nth degree and, and all of that. Everything had to be just, just perfect and very formal. And, uh, you know, I like these new weddings these days where they're dancing down the aisle at the end or there's a flash mob or something going on. That's, that's awesome. That's what it ought to be because a wedding is a celebration of something new that God is doing. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying there's something about what I am doing in the world that replaces all of our efforts at self-improvement with a party. Let's, let's just kind of file that away and hang on. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it. There's another way he deals with the law here, and that's what I call the law as validation. That's what we come to when we get to this issue of the Sabbath. There's a couple of different episodes here that, in, uh, about the Sabbath. And we need to think about, understand the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a, a major distinguishing mark for the people of Israel. It was something nobody else did, nobody else observed. They, they, were, they were unique in the fact that they would take a day each week and, and not work on that day. And it was something that had its roots in creation, that God had created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. It had become explicit in Exodus when, when God gave them the law. It was one of the big ten that they, that they had to obey, that they had to follow. And it was something that, that had become for them something that set them apart as Jews. And it, was, and it had become all about what a Jew could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. That was that was the way they talked about the Sabbath. You can do this. You can't do that. This is what you, 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 you must not do on the Sabbath. And it was just a list. It became law as validation. It became the way that you could tell who was in and who was out. You know who you are. You know you're a true Jew if you observe the Sabbath this way. Now, we still sometimes seek validation in the rules don't we? And I think it can work. It works a couple of different ways. Some people seek validation uh, by keeping the rules, by following the rules, by doing everything within the rules. It's what I, what I characterize as the model achiever. We're going to to just do everything that we're supposed to do and do it right so that we, we achieve everything that, that we're supposed to within those rules. And then the other people find validation by disobeying the rules, right? By breaking the rules. That's more kind of the maverick kind of mentality. 
And when you start having kids, you realize every one of them has a different sort of disposition towards that. You know, I, I, I've seen couples who have their first child, and it's one of those rule keeper kind of kids. And they just think they're awesome parents. And then they have their second kid. I, I take some sort of perverse pleasure out of, of their discovering that it wasn't because they were such awesome parents. It was because this kid just does everything you tell them to do. Now the next one comes along, it's the maverick kind. They're going to they're gonna be outside the rules. And don't you know people in both of that, those categories, you can decide, you, you know yourself right now. Yeah, I'm the rule keeper. Or I'm the one who, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the world. I'm going to achieve by coloring outside the lines and doing what's, what's, uh, what's not expected of me. But you know... The thing that both of those approaches to life have in common is that both of them find validation by how they respond and how they operate in relation to the rules, to the law. Well, Jesus' answer to this sort of validation understanding of the law was was, uh, in two responses. First of all, in that first encounter with the gathering of the wheat, the disciples were walking through the fields, on Saturday, they were hungry. They did what it wasn't stealing wheat. It was something that was accepted to do. They were just sort of harvesting. They were they were just uh, getting some wheat for their food for that day. And and the Pharisees said, "No, nope, you can't do that." They were watching. They were already suspicious. They were watching, paying attention, and they said, "You you can't do that. That's not lawful for you to do." And Jesus says. You remember that story about David, how it didn't have to do with the Sabbath really at all. It was just David, King David, who was their model for everything. He, one time, when he and his men were hungry, they went and ate the special bread that only the priests were supposed to eat in the temple. Here's someone you recognize as pious who's stretching the law for the sake of their well-being and... And that seems to be okay. Then the other example, he goes to the temple on a Sabbath. There's a paralyzed, a man with a withered hand, a paralyzed hand who is there. And and again, they're watching. They're paying attention. He knows they're watching. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to see if he will heal the man on the Sabbath. And he asks the question, is it right to do good or to do evil? Can you give life or just or take life on the Sabbath? What's the right thing to do? And they're just they're just quiet because they don't want to. That what they really want to do is catch him, and he just says, "Stretch out your hand." So Jesus, in these two instances, seems to be saying, "Okay, it's it's okay on the Sabbath to to do what to do what's good for our flourishing, and it's okay." on the Sabbath to do good for others. And then in the middle of it, he inserts these, these two verses in verse 27, 28, when he says, he says, don't you know, the Sabbath, you, man was not made for the Sabbath. You weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. In other words, you're completely missing the point of the Sabbath. And then he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It seems like he's saying, you know, I actually came up with this whole idea. I was part of it. And I get to say what you can and you can't do on the Sabbath. 
And so they went out and plotted to kill him. Why? Well, it's because their whole identity, their whole sense of worth, everything that they were and, and everything that they saw themselves as being, their whole lives were wrapped up in the law. And Jesus seemed to be threatening the law in ways that they just could not tolerate. Uh, the law had become not only validation, not only self-improvement, but it had become identity for you. They had subscribed to this basic tenet that I think we often, we, we always do in all of our problems with the law, is that you are what you do. Uh, for them, what they did was the law. You take that away, and they didn't even know who, who they were anywhere, anymore. I think this is a root of all of our problems with the law. How does Jesus solve that? Well, I want to go back and think about those two verses a little bit more. Uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for the law. And the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Uh, I think that Mark's gospel, like all four of the gospels, is written as, a, as, as an account of the good news that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the solution, it's the culmination, it's the, it's the grand finale, it's the, the climax of the story of Israel that God has been writing from the very beginning. And so here, here is, in this passage, I think Mark is, is talking about how, how Jesus completes that story, the story of the law that began in the very beginning. And it goes all the, way, all the way back to Genesis. God created a world that was good. He created it in six days, and on the seventh day, He rested. And you know, sometimes in our egotism, we tend to think that, that man was the, the climax of creation. That's, that's simply not the... the the, the truth. You know, we're not the pinnacle of creation. The pinnacle of creation is Sabbath. He created a garden that was modeled after what later became the temple. It was a place of worship. So he created everything and created man and woman, created human beings to be there in that garden to worship him. And then on the seventh day, he rested. This was, this was not an afterthought. This wasn't because God was tired. It was because it was the goal of the whole thing was rest. And then the first human sinned, rebelled against God. And because of that, they were cast out of this garden and their, their fruitful labor became uh, toil and difficulty and and God at that point promised that there would be redemption that would come. And after that, that initial sort of all those, those three, three major stories that happened there in Genesis to just show the extent of the, the brokenness of the world, God begins His plan by choosing Abraham, this elderly man wandering, polytheistic man wandering out in the 
the wilderness and calls him and promises him, I'm going to bless you and through you all of the nations of the world will be blessed. And then you jump forward a few hundred years and and he's delivering his descendants now, a, a mighty nation out of slavery and bondage and Egypt and taking them out into the wilderness and giving them the law. Now there's a couple of things we need to be aware of here. First of all, the law did not come before he he rescued them. He rescued them first. He called them first. He made them his people first, and then he gave them the law to know how they would how they should live as God God's people. It wasn't a condition. It wasn't something they had to do to in order to become his people. They were his people, and because they were his people, out of that they could live the law. And right in the middle of that was the the Sabbath that was given to them as a gift to remind them that we used to be slaves in Egypt in bondage and now now God has ordained, He's told us to take a, a day of rest. But not only that, it's a reminder of the fact that that this is where humanity came from. We lived in a garden where God had provided everything. And we had a role to play. We had work to do. And yet, God was the one who sustained. And, and we can trust this God who has called us and who has delivered us. And we don't have to work seven days a week. We can take one day and, and not, do, not work at all because we can trust Him to provide for our needs. Well, you know, they, they were rebellious and prone to sin. And they kept falling back into rebellion against God and they would and they would break the Sabbath and they didn't break the Sabbath uh, you know breaking the Sabbath didn't make them not God to not be God's people anymore they broke the Sabbath because in their hearts in their own hearts they they didn't want to be God's people anymore they didn't want to trust him and so they would they would break the Sabbath to try and get ahead a little more but it was it was out of the sinfulness of their hearts that they did that. But God was always faithful and He was faithful in His judgment to the point that eventually they found themselves in exile and had lost everything. And when they were at the very bottom of that pit, they decided we are not ever going to get here again. We're going to draw a line around the Sabbath that we will never cross. And we will we'll, we'll make rules that will keep us from getting anywhere near doing that. And what finally happened was that Sabbath that had been a gift from God became a burden and became validation. It became the line for being in and out of God's people for them. Something that, that they'd never intended to do. And that's why Jesus says, you've, you've missed the whole point of what the Sabbath is all about. And Jesus comes along saying, you weren't made for the Sabbath. You are made for God. And the Sabbath is God's gift to you. Sabbath means rest. Not self-improvement. Not validation. Not identity. And Jesus came came to pave the way for us to enjoy that Sabbath rest again, not just one day a week, but as the permanent home of our lives. So when Jesus says, 
I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He's not just saying, yeah, I'm the one who gets to decide what you can and what you can't do on the Sabbath. He's saying, I am the Sabbath. I am the rest that you were created to enjoy. And this is how Jesus changes our relationship with the law. You know, we're in this rut of I am what I do. And Jesus sets us free to say, I do what I am. My identity doesn't flow from from the stuff I do, from the achievements that I have, from the accomplishments that I'm able to stack up. All of those things are just an expression of what He has done in me already, of who He has made me to be. Jesus sets us free. The people of Israel could never quite pull this off. But in Jesus, the Lord of the law has come to make all things new. In His life, He fulfilled the law. In His death, He took the burden of the law. In His resurrection, He set us free from the law. Now that sounds really elementary. It is. You knew that when you came in here. Our identity doesn't flow from what we do. What we do is supposed to flow out of our identity, who we are. We've got this. We're children of the Reformation. We know salvation by grace. It's, a, it's His gift. We don't, we don't earn any of this. We, we, we're to live out of what He's already done. We, we know this. We have this. And yet, I'm always going back. Put the new wine in the old wineskins, aren't you? I mean, I do it all the time. In my heart, I'm, I'm struggling to, to measure up. So how do, we, how do we put this into practice in our lives? I, w- I want to suggest three identities that lead to three rhythms. I know you guys are Soma, so you get identities and rhythms. So we'll... Here's here's some identities, three identities and three rhythms that I think come out of this passage. The first is, first identity, we are guests of the bridegroom. We're guests at his wedding feast. And what that means is that our default is not self-improvement. Our default is celebration. It's it's a, it's a party. We're here to celebrate what he has has done and what he's accomplished. So it doesn't mean that I don't practice spiritual disciplines. It doesn't mean that I don't fast every once in a while. That, those can be good things, but I'm not doing those things out of, out of a sense of trying to improve myself. I'm in the midst of all of those things. I'm, I'm coming out of a, a celebration of who Christ is and what He's done and, and who He is in me and, and discovering more and more of what that involves. So we're, we're guests of the bridegroom. So we practice a rhythm day by day of celebration. Second identity. We are those who live in the Sabbath of God. And so the rhythm that we live out of that is rest. Uh, As opposed to the rat race. You know, that term rat race comes from rats, you know, rats on a wheel. 
You know, where they're, they're working and they're running, and they're, they're, but they're not going anywhere. They're just exerting effort. And that's what, <laughs> that's what the, the rat race is all about. I'm trying to achieve, trying to get to where I want to be. But really, I'm just on this wheel, and, and every achievement is just a, a disappointing sort of anticlimax for me to keep going to the next achievement. And, and that's the way we tend to live when we're living in the law, when, we're, when we assume that we are what we do. But the rhythm we need to practice is those who live in the Sabbath that Jesus has accomplished for us is to, uh, is to rest. Say, doesn't mean that I don't pursue my goals. Doesn't mean that I don't continue to create or build whatever I'm building or, or write whatever I'm writing or teach whoever I'm teaching. It doesn't mean that I don't do any of those things. It means that I do those things out of a position of rest and that he has already accomplished everything I need to do. We are, we are those who live in the Sabbath, so we rest. And then we're, the third identity is we are subjects of the Lord of the law. And the rhythm is simply, simply to follow him as opposed to trying to prove ourselves or to improve ourselves by keeping the rules or whatever. We just follow Him. Jesus has come as a fulfillment of the law. In His life, He fulfilled the law. In His death, He took the burden of the law. In His resurrection, He's freed us from the law. So we are not what we do. We do who we are in Him. Celebrate rest, follow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, you have uh, accomplished what we can never accomplish. And out of that out of your accomplishment, Lord, is, is what we want to live. Uh, we thank you that you've set us free from trying to be something through what we do. Lord, help us to live in that joy of celebrating you every day, resting in you every day, following you every day. That we might live in the joy of that freedom every single day. We thank you and pray it in Jesus' name.